you can build a much bigger company much, much faster when you learn to share in equity and decision-making and team building and collaboration. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on Inside Reproductive Health, I'm joined by Gina Bartese. Gina is a seasoned entrepreneur and a thought leader, bringing over 20 years of experience and innovation to the digital healthcare space. She has a proven track record of building new companies from the ground up. You might know a few of them, such as Fertility Authority and Progeny. She has her degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and now she's the Chief Executive Officer of Kind Body, a company whose vision for this field is one that is very much in tow with the current demographic, and we're going to explore that in our conversation today. Ms. Bartese, Gina, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks, Griffin. So I'm excited to have you here because I wanted to have you on the show when I heard you speak at the Midwest Reproductive Symposium. You gave the keynote at the CEO dinner, and I was in the back with a, a few of my friends, and I just thought, get them, Gina, get them, <laughs> as, as you were giving your talk. And I mean, you know, if they don't listen to me, say, maybe they'll listen to you. You built some big companies than I have thus far, and I think you're in a position to lead by example. So I want to talk more about it because there's some people that know a lot about Kind Body have been following very closely. And then there's probably just as many, if not more, that have heard the name. And they're, they're, but what is that? And they, and they haven't dug in yet. So I'd like to you know just sort of talk about Kind Body as I understand it. And then you can fill in and correct me. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks, Griffin. What I'm seeing right now is based in New York and scaling out. Right now, you're in Manhattan. Do have a brick and mortar location in Manhattan? You have an IVF lab. You have REIs. What I think a lot of people think about when they think about Kind Body is the mobile testing that you're able to bring out to different locations, and that's also expanding into different cities where you do FSH testing, AMH testing at particular rem- remote locations, schedule appointments beforehand, and then women come to those locations for testing. Is that halfway accurate? That is very accurate. Thanks, Griffin. So I've seen, you know, Kind Body Boots at PCRS. And I think what probably people wonder is, do you compete with other fertility clinics or do you complement other fertility clinics? Well, I would argue that we do both. For the last 10 years in the field, I have many, many friends in the field, I think what we do at Kind Body that more and more fertility practices are doing is listen to the patient. And I would argue at Fertility Authority and Progeny, the early success of those two businesses really was about putting the customer at the center of the mission of the company. I think what's changed in the last 10 years is how patients Uh, purchase services. We know more and more is moving to managed care. Certainly more and more is moving to an employer-sponsored plan. And so I think historically, 10 years ago, it was predominantly cash pay. Um, And primarily, 
for uh, fertility treatment was reserved for the top 1%. Fundamentally, we think that's flawed. What we believe, again, at Kind Body is improving access and improving the patient experience and allowing as many people to be able to afford and experience fertility treatment that want it. And so we offer everything from this mobile access, bringing care directly to the patient. We offer payment plans. Um, and we're seeing um, lots of patient interest. One of the things that we measure everything, but one of the data points that we're proud of is 47% of our patient population is non-Caucasian. And that's a deliberate marketing on our behalf that says, listen, for too long, fertility was for, when I talk about 1%, it really is the white, wealthy 1%. And we've intentionally staffed with a diverse team, with a diverse initiative that said, we can get better as a team and as a group that looks like our patient population. So where does the mobile care, where does mobile testing come into that? At what point did you decide that that needed to be a part of Kind Bodies offering? Yeah. Again, I think if you, we do patient polls all the time and one of the top things, in fact, it's more important to patients today, uh, this matter of convenience than it is of success rates. And a lot of people would poo poo that. We have data and we have surveys, um, some that have been outside focused, some that we've done with our internal efforts, but patients do now prioritize convenience over success rates. So if it is important to be convenient and to be where the patient is, we can't assume that everybody is going to travel to Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in Manhattan to come see our fertility doctors. So we bring care to the patients. Certainly we use data again to drive those decisions about where the mobile um, clinic will be. They're in densely populated areas uh, where women are 25 to 45 and have an expressed desire to build a family, whether that's egg freezing or IVF or IUI. We also have an initial interest, again, I mentioned the diverse patient population. That means same-sex couples. It means patients that don't identify with one gender or the other. And so, again, we really want our team, our marketing efforts, our business plan to look and be centered around the patient needs. So the mobile efforts were early. They're growing. The reception has been more than we anticipated. And so I think you'll see more mobile clinics right now. Our mobile clinics are launching. We do use them to launch in markets. We're launching in San Francisco at the end of the month. And so our pre-launch strategy is always uh, this mobile effort first. And then we'll often, you'll see a temp perm clinic as we're testing markets to see various neighborhoods. And if that's what our data shows, is that what real life proves out? And then we often have flagship locations. So you're exactly right. In Manhattan, we have three locations, one at 40th and 5th, one at 55th and 5th. And then our flagship is at 102 5th, which is 15th and 5th Avenue. We in, have the mobile. Those are all brick and mortar locations. In New York, those those mobile locations remain there or they can go to other parts? Of they'll the move. Yeah, they'll move. So, And that's what's great about a mobile facility. So our mobile RV, so there are two full exam rooms uh, with ultrasound scans, with phlebotomists, um, and it was in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. We anticipate that we'll be coming to Brooklyn in the next six to 12 months as well. The first thing we do is go test patient demand. Right now, when you live in uh, the suburbs of Manhattan, Brooklyn, many, many Brooklyn people feel like they have to come into New York City to get high quality of care. We would argue that when you ask earlier on, are we competitive or complementary to other fertility clinics? First of all, I can be the first to attest that there's extraordinary quality of care 
in terms of clinical care in Brooklyn. The question is, can we bring the kind body experience and do that well in Brooklyn? And we just tested that this past Saturday. And so Brooklyn will be one of the satellite offices that we open in the next six to 18 months. How far can you go out with these mobile locations? One thing I talk about on the show a lot is a lack of access to care in the interior of the country. I talk a lot about the doctors that are being recruited out of the fellowship very often are going to the coastal cities, very often not to places like my home city unless they're from there. And I really see that being a problem in the next decade or so if we don't have other types of ways of serving those populations. How far out can you go? I mean, if you're blocking appointments in chunks, could you go up to Poughkeepsie for a day or, or the weekend? Could you go up to Albany? You know, how far, how mobile are these mobile? Yeah, the mobile vans or the mobile vehicles are unlimited. You could take them to Poughkeepsie. You could also take them to Kissimmee, Florida. You could take them to Topeka, Kansas. And so, you know, again, today, it used to be that there was this huge mystique and, and opaque infertility industry. Today, we want to talk about increasing access and bringing transparency. We all know that there's it's only one day, your day of retrieval, that you truly need to be in clinic uh, for the egg retrieval and connected then with a high quality lab. But otherwise, those first eight to 10 days leading up to the egg retrieval can be done in any satellite office. And I think, you know, traditionally speaking, doctors and other industry executives did not embrace that, but they're embracing it rapidly today because I think all of us, I really do, these are best-in-class clinicians, whether they work for Kind Body or another clinic. We really all do share a sincere interest in increasing access, and it's not just the coastal cities. You hear heart-wrenching stories in the middle part of the country. We know the middle part of the country is growing and they deserve access just as people living in Manhattan or San Francisco or Los Angeles. You mentioned that sometimes you could compete with fertility clinics, sometimes that you can collaborate and refer to them. At what point, point in the operations is that decision made one way or the other if someone is at a certain location and they could go do retrieval and transfer at your lab in, in Manhattan or they could uh, do their monitoring, et cetera, at the satellite offices, or maybe they live further out and you refer to someone else. How does that, how does that work? When are they referred to you? When are they referred to someone else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Griffin. That's a great question. So Kind Body is setting up its own centers of excellence across the country and markets that we can't get to yet. And then we have criteria to be a part of our COE, just like any other partner would. The first part of our criteria in being a center of excellence in the Kind Body Network is more than 50% REIs must be female clinicians. And you'd be surprised, or maybe not since you're an industry executive, how quickly, if you map out all the fertility clinics in the country, and your number one criteria is more than 50% have to be female REIs, how many clinics fall off the map? More than 50% of the clinics fall off the map pretty quickly. So, what you do is you establish your criteria around data and patient needs. So we know today that four out of five patients prefer a female REI. Um, the other 20% check a box called do not have a preference. And 1% of the case, they'll choose a male provider. But this is a women's health, and it is remiss on us as individuals and as industry experts not to say 
not to acknowledge that female patients want a female clinician. So that is our first criteria. The other criteria is more than 75% single embryo transfer. The other criteria is must meet national uh, industry averages or above, must be a member of SART. But we have a credentialing criteria of who our partners are in Houston and Chicago and Seattle and other markets. And again, it, it gets relatively easy for us to pick the partners when your first criteria is patient facing. When we know 80% of the time patients prefer a female clinician, we're going to pick partners who really are building a fertility practice and share our methodology that women doctors, that patients want female doctors and that female REI deserve an equity position in their fertility clinic. That was another point I made that raised a lot of eyebrows at the, at the Midwest Reproductive Symposium. Well, I'd like to dig into it a little bit because I, I want to talk about the for women, by women ethos that Kind Body has. And it is an ethos. It's very much in the DNA of the company. It's in your writing. It's in your talking. It's how you deal with your team and operations. It's not just a marketing slogan. And I see the value in that. And I also wonder if if you think that at some point, narratives like this could have an undesired consequence or an even greater divide in some areas. And what I'm thinking of, for example, is if we're just, you know, you have a criterion for centers of excellence who are partners must be 50% or more REIs. At some point, well, does that create a group of REIs, our male-only groups, because there are certain groups forming in parts of the country, practice groups that think we're a female-only group. We've got five docs, we're independently owned, or maybe we're part of a bigger group, but we are a female-only group. And I can think of a few of these groups. And I definitely see the value in that. I just wonder if it all, if it by default means that there has to be male-only groups because of those ratios, and then and then they uh, they get split. And I think of it, I belong to two different mastermind groups of agency owners, marketing agencies. Both groups are pretty male-heavy. They're probably 70-30. and both the men and the women in both groups say wish more women were here, but. There might be ladies agency owner mastermind groups. And if there are, by default, that would draw female members away from our groups and our groups would become even more, the divide would become even greater because of that. So I wonder, you know, have you thought much about this? What do you think about that? We actually think about gender and gender parity often. So a couple of points that you raised. First of all, when we look for centers of excellence, remember the patients prefer a female doctor 80% of the time, we could have had our threshold to join our COE 80%. We said that that was unrealistic in the fertility industry that has historically been um, male ownership. And we can talk about um, men just take risk more than women do. And women need to learn to take risk and start their own practices. But so, so we reduced the threshold to make it more manageable that 50% of the REI should be female. And again, if we're making data-driven and patient-driven decisions, we feel really good and really confident about that. We also think it is not good for our business to be 100% female. Our one of our senior advisors is Dr. Jacques Cohen, who, you know, the industry widely acknowledges as a leading expert across the world. Jacques reminds me often, he's like, Gina, you know, you need sperm to have a baby. And I'm like, yes, Jacques, I know that. Our HCLD is Tim Smith. Our head of real estate is Chris Perry. So we are, we've seen the pendulum swing the other way. We also think 
um, it would not be as strong of a company if we were 100% women. We need gender parity and gender diversity. We just think when we think about clinicians and we think about building a company, we're going to build a company around the data that we intake. And the da- this is patient data decision we're making. And remember, patients don't desire a female clinician 100% of the time, and we wouldn't be exclusively female. There's a culture that we create here that's about collaboration. It's about humility. It's about teamwork. It's about being open-minded and embracing failure and embracing mistakes. It's, you know, and so it's not one size fits all and all females go into that because there are some females who would not work here culturally well because they don't have their ego in check. So, um, but we're really mindful of that. So we want gender diversity at Kind Body, both on the clinical side as well as the corporate side. Do you see that preference for wanting female RIs? Have you broken that by age cell, maybe you know, like 18 to 25, 25 to 35, 35, 45, 45, etc. Have you broken into that anymore? I just wonder if that... You know. No, we have not broken it into age groups. What we did break it down to see was their um, a preference in an IVF community versus an egg freezing community. Um, and the preference is the same, um, this high percentage of preference for a female clinician. So, and some inferences can be made from there because the egg freezing patient population, at least at Kind Body, has a tendency to be younger. So you could infer, but so we haven't seen any differences between IVF and egg freezing. The percentages are about the same. What do you suppose that means for? Male REIs, especially male REIs that might be 10 years out of fellowship or still in fellowship or male OBGYNs, do you think that male physicians might not be long for women's health? No, I think there are. I can think of 20 off the top of my head right now who are extraordinarily great clinicians. So it's not but they're very, very good at talking to patients. And so it does not mean that male REIs cannot be successful in the fertility world. On the contrary, I think many of them can. I do think what has to change is this very patriarchal system of healthcare. And it's not just fertility. It's particularly obvious in fertility because the woman is often naked and disrobed. And so there's a lot of vulnerability around that. But at Kind Body, we teach our clinicians, our corporate team, everybody believes we're on a journey with the patient and we're in a partnership. We're on the same level as our patients and we're in the trenches with them. And, and, and you get rid of this, again, very hierarchical patriarchal, I'm the doctor and you're subordinate to me as the patient and what I say goes. And I do think regardless of gender, if there are any doctors that kind of believe that they're above the patient or they only know what's best or they talk to the patient in a, not a condescending, but in a lower, you know, that will have to go away. Those physicians, regardless of gender, will either sell, retire, or go out of business because Patients are too educated today, and they won't tolerate being talked to like they're made to feel inferior. And so, again, I I think what we talk about and preach and hopefully is obvious to our patients is this partnership and humility that 
we're here to support you and guide you. And that doesn't mean a rush to IVF or a rush to egg freezing. The majority of our patients, and we're proud of this, now we're allowed to do this because we're venture-backed. Most private centers don't have this same kind of flexibility, but there's a huge mission and a huge education that we're trying to, to educate and empower uh, patients. So a large percentage of our patients that are coming in, check. We, again, we poll everybody. Many of them are simply coming in to get be educated. When you poll them, you know, are you interested in egg freezing? Are you interested in IVF? Or are you interested in just being educated? Many, many of them choose. I just want to find out about my fertility. And then when their test results come back in range, they will postpone their decision. And we're very prideful of that. It's hard to do that because if you were in a private center and, and you really had to have your revenue to turn into cash flow to be able to make your bills every month and pay your staff and pay the electricity, you, you don't have that time to really educate patients. But we're pretty proud of those statistics because that is our primary responsibility as a mission-driven company is to educate more patients. So you talked about some doctors and clinics with the the mentality of this is the way it is and you're the patient, that can mean a number of different things and they have a few different routes facing them, some of which might be, you know, you're going to retire, they're going to go out of business. I have felt the same way for some time, don't necessarily see it happening yet. And so I wonder, Jean, I wonder if they're not hurting badly enough. And if that point does come, when is it? But uh, you might have heard the parable of a man goes to visit a homeowner and the homeowner's sitting on the porch with the dog and the dog's whining. And the man asks the homeowner, why is the dog whining? He's sitting on a tack. Well, why doesn't he move? Because it's only hurting him bad enough to whine. It's not hurting him bad enough to move. <laughs> and so I wonder, you know, I, I wonder if, if that point comes, if it comes in an economic downturn. But it, for the most part, I think a lot of people still have waiting lists. A lot of people still are at the capacity that they want to be. They are having trouble recruiting new doctors. I, I see that's already happening. Right. But in terms of their own volume, it seems that the demand is here and the supply of people that can meet the demand is still much lower. And so when does that point come that they hurt if they do? Yeah, I agree completely, Griffin. I think, you know, the industry is growing so fast that there's room for a lot of behavior that you and I may not support. Like when the industry, we know the egg freezing industry is growing at a 25% CAGR, uh, IVF at 15%. So when the industry is just growing that fast, you can accept work, you know, not par behavior because there's so much demand. There's not enough supply. I think the solution is rather than hoping that those some of the legacy poor behavior changes, I think you have to rethink about the paradigm about how you bring in more clinicians into the REI field. Um, I mentioned my extraordinary relationship and respect for Jacques Cohen, one of his former business partners is David Sable. I'm a huge fan of David as well. So David is passionate about this too, about how we move service offerings to other clinicians. What else can nurse practitioners be doing? What else can OBGYNs be doing in the fertility field? We know that this you know, world of REI exists in the United States, outside of the U.S. Nurse practitioners and GYNs do your 
egg retrieval and do your IVF and do your egg freezing. And they also do it significantly more affordably. So I think the solution is instead of saying these doctors are going to have to change their behavior, retire, there'll be some of that. But I really think the way to correct this imbalance of supply and demand is we have to figure out how to bring more clinicians into the fertility field. And there's, there's plenty of capacity and clinical capacity in terms of people talent as well as operational talent when you look outside of this subspecialty. Um, and it's one of the things that we think about at Kind Body is we talk about having everyone perform at the top of their license. That means, and, and I, I understand that some REIs don't agree with this, our Kind Body REIs do, but REIs, in, in our opinion, uh, should not be doing ultrasound scans themselves. An ultrasound tech should be doing the ultrasound scans. The REI needs to be doing the true professional subspecialty stuff, but everything else that can be moved to um, another clinical person can and should be. And then that way, if you really think about reordering the workflow, you can bring more people in the system because the REI is only playing at the top of his or her license instead of doing everything. Like when you poll REIs, they spend an inordinate amount of time working with managed care companies on reimbursements, explaining to plan designs that a same-sex couple could be trying for 12 months and they're still not going to have success. Like they just do a lot of things that don't require a medical degree. And our REIs, we want them again, and they're happiest when they're, when they're really doing doing the subspecialty stuff and we take away the minutia. So I think that's probably a better solution than trying to get, you know, for lack of a better word, the old guard to kind of change behavior. And by the way, by behavior, I don't mean, I don't think you do either, that there's so many people out there behaving like ogres. Maybe there are some, but by behavior, it simply means just like, you know, updating your practice, making yeah. it adhering to the demands of the marketplace. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person before you put out an RFP or look for services, before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, Practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and 
they stress their teams, and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. Well, and one of the demands that we fundamentally believe on is technology and an EMR. It is, you know, too often the case. I would agree with you. We're not talking about ogres or bad folks. I've, I've just said everybody in this industry intends well. We just think fundamentally that paper is a bad thing for healthcare. Paper can get lost. Most doctors cannot read other doctors' handwriting. You misspell things, including last names of partners, and you mix up charts. Like, you know, use technology. And so you see too often doctors today still walking around with paper charts. And, and those are the behaviors that I think that we feel strongly that we can change is this adoption. You called it updating your practice. We would just tell you that fertility clinics, by and large, need to adopt technology more. They need to allow for online scheduling, online billing, like the way you run the rest of your life. It's interesting that because you're so vulnerable and you want a baby so badly, you go through this very laborious experience, whether it's wait times or whether it's the phone tag to turn your medication up or down. Like, you know, most people that are going through this are like, wait a minute, this seems very archaic. Why does this have to be? So, so we're more interested in bringing and utilizing technology, then again, I think some of those behaviors are harder to change. A lot of people would say, well, those are just the problems of healthcare. That's true for every subspecialty in healthcare. And it's a much broader problem and conjunction of problems than just what's occurring in our field. But are we in a better position because we're I've used the word elective in, in air quotes, but in, in some cases elective or some cases self-pay or some cases just not within the traditional delivery of healthcare. Are we, are we in a better position in some scenario or some senses to lead changes that need to happen in the rest of healthcare? I do think it's hard because fertility only affects kind of 1% of, of the population. One of our values in, at kind body is to be optimistic. So even though we're on the small subsliver of infertility, I, I refuse to believe that we can't make an impact. I will tell you what we're doing at kind body that is most often not being done. We're not choosing to stay in this subspecialty vertical. So at kind body, we're a women's health company. And we think about four buckets of patients we serve. Primarily, we serve 25 to 45-year-old women that are trying to conceive. So what are the other buckets we think about when we think about the healthcare landscape? Well, we think about fertility, and that's IUI and IVF, egg freezing and third-party reproduction. That's that bucket. But we also think about uh, mental health and wellness and well-being and prepping your body either pre- or post-conception, all of that that goes into it. And then along those lines, uh, nutrition and obesity. When you look at the middle part of the country and get away from the coast, we know that there's uh, lots of problems around conception, just around weight. So instead of accelerating you to IVF, what can we do to treat, whether it's a PCOS patient or an overweight patient and get their nutrition on track 
before we fast track them to IVF. And then the fourth bucket after fertility, mental health, and nutrition is gynecological care services. So Kind Body actually is a women's health company. The only thing that we outsource is obstetrics. So we have gynecological care, we have mental health care, we have nutrition, and we have fertility. Now that allows us, when we think about building our tech stack and our EMR, about partnerships. So we're in San Francisco, when we do these temp to perm, we're partnering with an urgent care and a primary care clinical team that believes as strongly in technology as we do. So our EMRs will talk to each other. It is a big task, this interoperability of electronic medical records, but you know, if you, if you, we are mission oriented, so it, it's a big problem we're trying to tackle, but we feel like that we will remain optimistic and that we can make dent because you, when you talk to patients, it is a big frustration of theirs. They talk about when you talk to patients, they believe, I do not believe this, but this is the patient feedback that other centers, when they go and they change clinics and they go to a different clinic, that other centers are intentionally withholding charts to prevent them from moving to another clinic. Now, I don't think that that is the case. I think it's just laborious to take a paper chart, make copies of the paper chart. They have to keep a copy of the paper chart, and then they have to send you with a copy of the paper chart. And so we want to remove any friction from patients who want to cycle a kind body or they want to cycle to an urgent care clinic or they want to cycle to a primary care clinic. But those records are electronic. They're not paper. There's so much to adopt. You talked about the doctor should be performing or the provider, whatever class of provider they are, should be performing at the top of their license. The REI should be doing only what the REI needs to be doing. And that's just on the clinical side. If we're looking at a business side, so now imagine we've got this same dynamic where there's an REI that is doing all of these things clinically that they don't need to be doing and then they're a partner physician, maybe they're the managing partner, and they've got all of these other business duties that they probably shouldn't be doing. A lot of our clients still pay us by paper check. It's still very often the doctor that's signing because there's not a CFO or, or someone in that financial position that, is, that once the agreement signed it, that they have the authority to, to sign out. I even have that in my company. I don't do my own account. I don't do my own AR, my own AP. And there are a lot of partner physicians, managing partners in a whole lot of roles. And I think it's slowing them down too much. I had Lou Waxine from RSC in the Bay Area on to talk about what they do. And he offered some great advice. I still, and I, I think that they're among the much better examples for most folks. I think it just slows them down too much to be involved in so many things that eventually the amount of updates, the amount that they need to adopt to stay current just becomes insurmountable. And then here you come in, you're the chief executive officer of this company. Your job is to keep the ship going in the direction that it's going at full steam. And there are other people in other seats at your company. And I, I just don't see how most centers will be able to compete with that type of structure and your, your company not being the only one. There are multiple, but it, to me, it's seen, I, I've made the analogy recently, like if you inherited this REI practice model, which is really the generalist healthcare medical practice model of the mid 20th century, and that's what you're using today, it's more or less you're playing 
flag football because that's how it happened. And then all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people come on with helmets and equipment and start pasting people because they're playing tackle. And uh, I don't know, can they adopt the way they need to? Because some are small enough where I think it's just in their DNA that they're so close and so friendly that they're going to be fine because just their people just love them, both their staff and their patients. But there's a middle size and I just, I don't see how they can keep up. I don't, I don't know what your view on that is. Yeah, I think it's human nature to do the same thing every day. I don't think it's, um, they're not, I think they're well-intended. I think it's just like the patient human beings, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know. And so I think the managing partner that's still coming in and signing his or her own checks, it's because that's the way they've been doing it for the last 10 or 15 years. And they don't wake up the next day and think, how can I make my business more profitable to pull more cash out to allow it to grow? They don't have oftentimes time to think about that. Instead, they think about, okay, wait a minute, I have surgery in the morning. I have two new patient consults. I have, you know, and a topic I have to address this afternoon, like, Patients are coming at them. And because the industry is growing so fast, they literally don't have time to stop and think about how they plan for growth. And, and so, that's what I'm saying is the yeah, fundamental It's going to be problem. hard. It's going to be hard. I think, I do think they'll either merge or be acquired or it, it just will be harder when things get tough. I don't know when things get tough going forward even if there is a contraction, which everybody's anticipating kind of in the next 24 to 36 months, we've already proven, if you look at SART numbers or anything else in the 07, 08, 09, there, you know, yes, there was a recession, but the growth rates slowed, but the growth rates were never negative. They simply slowed. That's and right. so that means that, you know, practices that are growing at 15 to 20% annually, maybe they only grow at eight to 10% annually when the contraction comes. But you know, the fertility industry has proved incredibly resilient, even in times of financial adversity. Your job is to think of future value as the, as the CEO of your mm -hmm. company. My job as, as president of Fertility Bridge is to think of future value. Even though my company is straight up bootstrapped, no commercial loan in the company, no money from mommy or daddy, no venture capital, private equity, straight up bootstrapped, straight up. Build, deliver, sell, save, hire, repeat. Yeah. And so I'm still in a number of seats, but even when it was just me doing Facebook ads for the very first people, I still had an accountability chart. And now I'm in a couple, now I'm in maybe a third of the seats or not even a quarter of the seats now. It's about getting me out of those seats and out to the visionary role, just the visionary role, so that I can be responsible for the future value of the company. That's your job. And I really just don't see the reason why practices can't adapt. The reason why it takes them months upon months to agree to like a very small marketing agreement where they can't get all of their people in one room to, to make a decision. The reason why they don't have chief human resources officer that can make a unilateral decision on payroll or a chief marketing officer that can make a, a, a decision on a campaign is because they don't have the structure in place. And it just continues to pile on. And I just would like those that want to remain in independent practice for the next five, 10, however many years that 
looking at yourself in that role, whether whether you want to be or not, that is your primary position as as the business owner. I can't just say, well, I don't want to learn accounting because I own my business. So I have to learn accounting to a literal, literal level. And I meet my accounting every month. It's one of the core functions of the business. And that's true for anyone that's, that's owning their business. And so I, I wonder if you see that being able to make that adjustment or if more acquisitions are simply the answer to this. You know, I, it really has to do with the DNA of the managing partner or the owner of the group. Like, you know, my first two businesses were bootstrapped and it taught me an, a lot about managing people and where my strengths and weaknesses were. So Feels like you feel like you can do everything now, right? Yeah, you do. But then the question is, do you want to? I mean, there are the people who still want to maintain this control. will have a hard time growing. You have to be able to trust other people at the MRS symposium. Um, I gave another speech on Saturday and some clinical questions came up. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was like, don't ask me anything clinically. I don't like blood or sperm or anything that moves. I said, you know, Dr. Lynn Westfall is our chief medical officer. And, And so, you know, it goes back to the DNA of the individual. Are they prepared to trust and share, to trust other people with decisions about the business, to trust other people with financial decisions, with equity in their business to help them grow? Do you like to share in success or do you prefer this autonomy and independence and have to control everything? I I don't have to control everything. In the beginning, when I was younger, you know, I, I probably thought I did, but now it is way better. You can build a much bigger company much, much faster when you learn to share in equity and decision-making and team building and collaboration. And so that's just me. It sounds like you've made that transition that says I can't get bigger without the support around me. So some people either agree with me and you, Griffin, or some people just say, no, I, I have to touch everything. And I have friends in both camps that say, I don't need to be in charge making 100% of the decisions. And I just spent the weekend with a girlfriend who's like, I like making 100% of the decisions. I'm like, but you don't have time to think or breathe or work out or meditate or anything else. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, wow, like <laughs> that just seems foreign to me. I like being a mom. I like being a wife. I like going out to the Hamptons and drinking a glass of wine. And I couldn't do that if I made 100% of the decisions. So it just, it's about patient, it's about your own personal preference. Yeah. Also, uh, there is probably 90% of the things that we do as a company that I'm not that good at. Nobody, yeah. nobody wants Griffin being their project manager. <laughs> I, I don't need to be placing Facebook ads. People can do that better than me. Our creative director is a lot better at designing the arts. When you're in that visionary role, you can do what? you're good at if that is in fact building the company and being responsible for you can sit atop of the mast and see where the ship needs to go and i can't say that i'm fully in that position yet because i'm constantly going down helping you adjust the sales we are you know it is entirely self-funded so we're we're getting there we've been getting there over the years but that there is no question that that is where i'm going that is the the north star that we're headed to come hell or high water. One of the things that you can see on the mast, uh, in your case, that you've seen very well is this problem that we call the telephone and how millennials don't like using it. And you talked a lot about that at the CEO dinner. And I said, preach. And one of the examples that I often use is, you know, you think about when you were a teenager and you had to call to 
the boy or girl that you were attracted to and uh, I said, hey, this is Kowalski. <laughs> is Jenny there? Is Danny there? That, that awkward conversation of or brother picks up and starts teasing her and you can hear the brother ripping on you to the family. Our patients under age 35 have never really had to do that. Our patients under 30 never had to do that. No, I know. And so you have adopted uh, um, a a means for people to not have to use the phone. And can you talk about that and the importance of that? Yeah. Um, again, it, you're going to be wildly successful, Griffin, because you, in my opinion, possess the um, skills, humility, self-deprecating humor. I think those are uh, keys to a wildly successful leader. And so, Again, I can hear you talk about, you know, I'm not good at 90% of what I do and everything. I think those are really the strengths of what great leaders are built off of. Again, it's about humility. It's about listening to your patients and your team members. And, and we call them team members. We don't call them employees. I mean, it's just about how you treat other people and living by the golden rule to treat other people how you'd like to be treated. When you talk to patients again today, they, they don't want to be on the telephone. Um, but when we talk about other team members and learning, um, I mentioned Lynn Westfall, but the head of our product and technology is Joanne Schneider. And she said, you know, we should utilize technology. Technology should be utilized for anything that's transactional. That's billing, it's booking appointments. And you have, human beings are incredibly special creatures, and they should be reserved for anything that is a special and necessary discussion, a negative pregnancy test, a failed IVF cycle, a recurrent pregnancy loss, an initial patient consult. So we're not talking about removing the human component or removing the telephone altogether, because when you have to convey a negative pregnancy test, we believe that technology is the absolute wrong tool for that communication. So we say technology for transaction. We Every time there's a transactional decision, we... we Calling in a script, well, that's a transactional thing. Anything that's transactional, we constantly solve. How long did that take you and what can we use technology for? And anything that we deem as critical and important, always we use humans for that. That's exactly right. Anything that can be automated should be, and anything that not should absolutely not be. We often get it mixed up because we, if, if we're not automating what we should be, then sometimes we just don't have time to tend to those things that are really important. And I 100% agree. Anything that's transactional, automated, anything that uh, needs that human touch, make sure that you've got the right people, too, in that position with that emotional intelligence. Jenny, you've given us so much to chew today. I'd like to conclude with just your thoughts, your concerns, your hopes for the, the field, where you see it now and where you see it in a few years, just what you would want our audience to consider in conclusion. Yeah, I mean, I'm really inspired by the industry as a whole. Again, I, I'll finish where I started with the overwhelming majority of clinicians and, and other colleagues in the space are doing right by the patient or doing right by the industry. And even if they're not doing right, they, their intent is well intended. They may not have the tools or the resources around them. I do think we're all on a mission to increase access. And so the question becomes, what does that access look like? In the future, we anticipate more managed care, more employers. We do have to start telling the truth 
about success rates, what leads to success rates, if genetic screening and vitrification are ubiquitous across clinics now, what does that do to success rates? You know, I was talking to another colleague, a competitor colleague. I said, what's the number one thing that contributes to success for a patient? And he said, the lab. And I said, respectfully, it's the patient's age. And so, you know, again, there's not a clinician in the country that would dispute that claim, that the patient's age has a bigger determining factor than a lab. And so, you know, we have to tell that story. Um, but anyway, it's, it's an incredibly humbling team and industry, and, and we know it's growing, and we just want to be respectful to the patient. So, uh, Griffin, uh, you're a legend in the industry, and I've enjoyed this afternoon and your time, and so thank you, thank you. Uh, to my team listening, Gina just gave us our next eight podcast episode ideas. So go, go ahead and put that in project management. Gina Bartesi, thank you thanks. very much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Yeah, thanks, Griffin. Take care. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.